The following podcast is provided by truthforsaints.com, a resource for cults, religions, and church history. Hello, and welcome to the Truth for Saints podcast, where we look to provide a Bible-based perspective regarding world religions, cults, sects, denominations, and philosophical worldviews, all for the purpose of equipping the saints of God for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ, as we see written in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 12. My name is Andrew Hamilton, and this week we'll be taking up part two of Jesus' true identity according to the Bible, or Christology, if you will. Last time, we talked about the importance of believing on the correct Jesus, the Christ of the Bible, as today we see the fulfillment of Matthew 24, verse Verses 23 through 24, at that time where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and says, At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus predicted 2,000 years ago that there would be false messiahs. Messiah meaning anointed, those that run around calling themselves the anointed or anointed ones, that sort of thing. You'll find gurus in India that uh, are having money laid at their feet because they consider themselves God incarnate. You'll find false teachers, false prophets, and uh, false pastors, if you will, running around calling themselves the man of God, the anointed or the anointing, and you must chase the anointing and, and this sort of thing. All in an effort to chase down a false Christ. Last week we studied some modern day versions of Jesus which are decidedly unbiblical. We looked at the Jehovah Witness version which is uh, Jesus is pictured as the Mar- as Michael the Archangel. Not, not symbolically but they really do think he is Michael the Archangel as referred to in scripture. And we examined where we examined a few scriptures that that looked at that. We we looked at four great Christological passages. One of which is Hebrews, which examines the hierarchy. That is to say that Jesus has uh, full and complete superiority to the angels in that passage. And we can see clearly. to which of the angels has he, God, ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? He's never said that to any of the angels. He's only said it to his son, the Lord Jesus. So uh, there are many Christs out there in the world today, many versions of the one who came 2,000 years ago. But the correct version, the biblical Christ, is the only Christ which is who is capable of providing you and me with eternal life. All of this we covered in part one of this series. We also, as I said, took a look at four great Christological passages which reveal much about the person of Jesus before he came to earth, as he came to earth, and where he is now that he's ascended into heaven from the earth. These passages in review are John chapter 1 and chapter 14, uh, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapters 1 and 2, and Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, which I just mentioned. Now, as we go through our study of what the Bible has to say about Jesus, the true Christ, his eternal nature, his incarnation, his life and ministry, his death and resurrection, and his glorification, we will refer back to these exact passages. We do look at a number of other passages in addition to these, but these are four key passages which, uh, as a Christian, these are four areas for you and I to know and to know well because they all speak and cover the area of who the person of of Jesus is from his uh, pre-incarnate glory to his incarnation to his life and works, his ministry, all the way through to his ascension and glorification where he is now. 
So on this particular episode, as I said, we'll go a bit deeper into what the Bible has to say about the eternality, that is uh, the pre-existence and subsequent incarnation of Jesus. That's what we're going to look at this time as God in the flesh among men. As I said before, we did look at some modern day aberrational views of who Jesus is. But uh, what I'd like to do is perhaps here take us back a little bit in church history and uh, review a few uh, erroneous views of Christ that took place in the very early days of the church. In fact, many of these views cropped up during the lives of the apostles while they were still around. Uh, But we'll cover just a few of those here to begin with. And then we'll, we'll, as we go through the study and as we, we talk about what the Bible has to say, you may find some parallels with many of the false views of Christ that you see today. So the first one, let's, the, the first Christological error and heresy uh, that perhaps we can look at is Ebionism. It's supposed to have come basically from a, a Hebrew word which signifies poor. Uh, and this error Uh, basically closed about the end of the first century. It was uh, the denial of the reality of the divine nature of Christ. It held uh, that the Lord Jesus was just merely man, whether naturally or supernaturally conceived. Uh, This man, however, held a peculiar relation to God in that from the time of his baptism, an unmeasured fullness of the divine spirit rested upon him. Ebionism was simply, it was basically just uh, Judaism, with uh, within the pale of the orthodoxy of the Christian Church, uh, supposedly, and its denial of Christ's Godhead was occasioned by an apparent incompatibility of this doctrine with monotheism. Uh, that's according to uh, Strong's definition. Now, with this erroneous view, we will see versions of this crop up over the next few centuries after Ebionism. We'll see versions of this in Arianism, where it's the full and complete acceptance of Jesus as a man, but it's inconceivable. That, it w- that this person would be God incarnate, that God would send his son. The problem with that is you have to completely wipe out all of the Old Testament passages which said that this is who the Messiah would be, that the Messiah would be God incarnate, God on the face of the earth. And we covered that with, uh, with the book of Isaiah. You would also have to turn a blind eye to many of the New Testament passages whereby Jesus' deity is affirmed, which is what we've we've covered last week and we'll cover in upcoming episodes. The second one I'd like to take a look at is uh, Serinthianism, which comes from a man named Serinthius, basically a, a person, a heretic who flourished in the days of the Apostle John. Uh, it was an offshoot of Ebionism, holding that there was no real or essential union of the two natures of Christ prior to his baptism, that this error founded the deity of Christ not on his supernatural birth, but on his baptism and endowment of the Spirit. So in both of these first views, Jesus was just a man, but something supernatural took place at the point that he was baptized by John the Baptist. And of course, we know the passage that they're they're speaking of, uh, that they're referring to incorrectly, which is... Uh, that passage where uh, John the Baptist saw a dove uh, descend from heaven and alight upon the Lord Jesus. And then a, a voice from heaven came and said, this is my b- beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So for us as Christians, that's a beautiful, wonderful picture of the Trinity. We see God the Father speaking from heaven regarding God the Son who is being baptized and God the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove and alighting upon Jesus. So it's a picture of us for for for, for those of us who are believers uh, of the Trinity in itself. But for Serinthianism, something else supernatural took place and then he took on this kind of special sort of superhuman powers, but still 
still human. Now, the interesting thing about Cerinthius is that there are uh, sort of reports and traditions that have been passed down. I, I believe it was Polycarp. John's disciple entered a, a sort of a bathing house. I don't want to say a bathhouse because it almost sounds like one of the seedier places in the Roman culture, but it was a, a sort of a bathing facility, if you will. And John, upon citing Serinthius there, said, let us get up and get out of this place because the Lord may very well bring bring the whole, before the whole house caves in, that sort of thing, something to that, that effect. The third Christological error and, uh, and or heresy would be uh, docetism. Now, docetism comes from a Greek word signifying to seem or appear. This error flourished from the latter part of the first to the latter part of the second century. It basically involved the denial of the uh, humanity of Christ, and it was attacked by the Apostle John in his first epistle. Uh, and that uh, chapter four, verses one through three, in denying the reality of Christ's body, docetism showed its connection with Gnosticism and Manichaeanism. This view was the logical sequence of their assumption of the inherent evil of matter. If matter is evil and Christ was pure, then Christ's human body must have been merely phantasmal. Uh, docetism was simply pagan philosophy introduced into the church. Now, this is a Greek uh, way of thinking. This is why it was so difficult for witnessing for some of the very early uh, apostles to witness to the Greeks uh, in that Greeks on the whole could conceive of God Almighty coming down. They could not conceive of God Almighty coming down in the form of human flesh. And it was because of this sort of dualism that took place whereby uh, flesh, all flesh and matter was evil and all spirit was good. So they could not reconcile the two. And so it became a very difficult message for them to say that Jesus came down in the flesh. And this is for that reason that John says, if anyone does not uh, declare uh, that Jesus came in the flesh, the same as the spirit of Antichrist. But he's trying to point out that there were a number of aberrations that had crept in the church saying that uh, Jesus was just a spirit and wasn't really uh, Man. But the orthodox view, which we'll look at in a moment, is that he was both fully God and fully man. Right. So that's just a few of the very early aberrations of Christology from the very early formation of the church uh, in contrast to things that we see around today. And, and w- as we go through this, we'll make references one, one way or another to, to other versions and other forms of who Jesus is and other, other testimonials of who Jesus is and that sort of thing. We talked a bit about the, the Mormon view of Jesus, which is, which actually flows from an unbiblical proper theology. And uh, the proper theology, of, a proper biblical theology, is that uh, God has no beginning, has no end. All things seen and unseen were created by the word of his mouth, but that is not the God of Mormonism. The God of Mormonism is one of millions of gods, and he progressed into God and then had a bunch of spirit babies, one of which was Jesus, one of which was Lucifer the devil. And uh, Lucifer the devil had a plan. It was rejected. He was angry about it, rebelled. Jesus had a plan. It was accepted. And Jesus, and uh, because Jesus' plan was accepted, uh, that then caused a holy war in heaven, that sort of thing. So the theology of Mormonism is not Christian. They're, they've never been a Christian denomination. And, have, and really, in the early days, they didn't want to be considered a Christian denomination. But 
in the last uh, probably 50 to 70 years, the, the vast amount of their converts have come from unchurched, um, biblically illiterate Christians who aren't even really aware what Christians believe, they, they themselves supposedly believe, or what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is, or who, the, who, who Almighty God is in, in, in his form as Trinity, in uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so as such, two well-dressed young men could come to a door and quickly guide someone into very erroneous views, all of which are, are decidedly unbiblical and unscriptural. But now let's jump into it. So this would be the person of Christ. And what I wanted to do first is take a look at the pre-existent and eternality of, of Jesus and perhaps provide a few scriptures for us to consider, starting from uh, Micah, the uh, the Old Testament prophet, one of the minor prophets um, of the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5, the latter half of verse 1 through verse 2, I'll read that here. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth, speaking of the one that comes forth from him, the one that's coming from Bethlehem Ephrathah, his going forth are from long ago or from everlasting, I think is as the King James has it, which is better, uh, or from the days of eternity. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So uh, the key of this is that we see that, number one, with a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. So whoever this is that's coming is going to be one that's going to be struck. This isn't somebody that's going to come as a superhuman uh, that's untouchable and uh, with a seemingly invincible, impenetrable veneer, that sort of thing, which is what a lot of people think that a Messiah should be or that a a savior of the world should look that way. And and that's just mankind. That's just our way of of thinking of things. But not, not at all. Actually, according to Micah, with a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. This happened repeatedly. Uh, in fact, I just watched again uh, the Passion of the Christ with uh, with my children and kind of walked them through uh, what everything was for and why it was happening and that sort of thing and explained that he was beaten for our sins, that he was, was for our transgressions and, and by his stripes we are healed. And not in the weird, charismatic way where, where we're supposed to all walk around with health and wealth because of the stripes Jesus bore. That's not what that means. It's never meant that. It's never been intended to mean that. But rather that our sins indeed have been atoned for for those of us who put our faith in him. So with a riot rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth from me. God Almighty to be ruler in Israel. So this ruler will come from Bethlehem, a little tiny nation, a little tiny city rather in the nation. Uh, and that hasn't happened. There hasn't been anyone that's even been remotely close to resembling a Messiah. And uh, uh, that's come from that town before or after that time. No one that has come from Bethlehem has even come close to resembling a Messiah. Not one that has been struck or anything along those lines. But we do see that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy and that he was born in the town of Bethlehem. Uh, As his father Joseph needed to return there, his family line was from Bethlehem and he needed to return there for a census. He did return there. And as it happened, Jesus uh, was born of, uh, of the Virgin Mary 
Joseph's wife, whom he did not know until after Jesus was born. There we find that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. For from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Now, this ruler, his going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That says one thing. Almighty God uh, has come down in the flesh, as we covered last time in Isaiah. And this person that will be struck on the cheek, this person that will come from Bethlehem, has no beginning. His goings forth are from everlasting or from eternity. And so let's look at a, uh, let's look at a couple others. In fact, I've been referencing it. Why don't we go ahead and read it right now? Deity of Christ, the eternal. If you look at uh, Isaiah chapter nine, verses one and two and six and seven, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Let's look at verses one and two real fast. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. Now, the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, that's basically the area of Samaria or Galilee. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. There you go. And so Jesus, of course, when he fled, when when Jesus' family fled Bethlehem, and this is another point, you see, because Herod wanted to know who it was that was supposed to come and be the ruler of Israel. And so he looked to his counsels, those who would know the, the Pharisees and the scribes, to, to find out where does he come from. And they said to him, he comes from Bethlehem. So they, the Pharisees and the scribes in, in Herod's senior's day, they knew that the Messiah came from Bethlehem. So it wasn't that they were operating in complete and total ignorance when Jesus did arrive or that those of their children were acting in complete ignorance. They knew that this Messiah was to come from Bethlehem. So in finding this out, then, of course, Joseph receives the warning from the angel, flees Bethlehem, goes to Egypt. That fulfills another scripture from out of Egypt. I will call my son, which is a dual fulfillment prophecy because he called his the one nation that uh, he chose for himself and has referred to as his sibling. He has done that uh, in the nation of Israel. But it's a dual fulfillment prophecy because he said from out of nation, from out of Egypt, I have called my son. Then they come back to the area area of Galilee of the Gentiles. And so Jesus settles there in Galilee and it's the other side of the Jordan and fulfills that. And now here you look here in verse two of Isaiah, it says the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now I would submit to you that there has never been anyone from Bethlehem that has shown a light to anyone that I know of in history outside of the Lord Jesus. No one even remotely close. I don't even know if a good book has come from an author out of Bethlehem, and I'm not putting down Bethlehem, but the point is that no one else has come. Only the Lord Jesus fulfills both that and the Galilee prophecies. This is all in Isaiah and Micah. These are people that uh, you know, Micah wrote about uh, five, five or six hundred years before the Lord Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote uh, probably, gosh, I want to say about maybe about a, a hundred years even earlier than that. So uh, here you have Jesus fulfilling both Bethlehem and Galilee of the Gentiles. And here he, he comes and basically the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Let's, let's look at verses six and seven of that same passage of Isaiah nine. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. 
And here's the key part I want you to pay attention to. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We, we see the a note that this, this person, this child who's born to us will be called Mighty God and Eternal Father, which indeed he is the father of the Christian faith. He is, he is one in being with God, the father of, the, of all creation. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government, that's this child that's born, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and evermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So here we see uh, in that particular passage a number of different areas to look at, but the key there is the eternality of Jesus, that uh, he is his goings forth were from everlasting, and here we, we see him referred to as mighty God, eternal Father. So we've talked about pre-existent, eternal deity of Christ and the eternality of Christ. Well, let's take a look at the pre-incarnate glory of the Lord Jesus, which he did return to. Let's uh, look at a prayer that Jesus was praying, John uh, chapter 17, verses 3 through 6. And you'll notice a few things in these verses. The first thing is, this is, this is what the Lord Jesus is praying. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Verse five. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. And here's the thing I want you to pay attention to. It's five with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That statement, the Lord Jesus makes himself. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had before that I had with you before the world was. That uh, completely obliterates the Mormon idea of Jesus uh, before the world was, because in, in Mormon theology, the world ha has always been all, all that God did is he organized a bunch of things. He didn't create anything. If you talk to them, the universe has no beginning and matter has no beginning. The God with whom we have to do, according to Mormon theology, just organized things in the universe. But this says that uh, Jesus had had an eternal glory or had a glory with Almighty God the Father uh, before the world was. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So also in that same chapter, John 17, you look in verse 24 where he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me for you loved me when before the foundation of the world. Now, this all took place. And it also destroys the idea of the Jehovah Witness version of Jesus, which says that he's Michael, the archangel, and he transformed and turned into this and turned into that. But the point is that uh, he has a glory and a love from the father that existed before the world was before the foundation of the world. So in Philippians, let's, let's refer back to a couple of our key passages to look at the pre-incarnate glory. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Have this attitude in yourselves. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Have this attitude in yourselves, which, also, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So what you see there is, although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, 
there it is. He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. There you are. So you see what's happening is uh, the glory that Jesus possessed before he came to earth. And then this, of course, has kept theologians busy for thousands of years. Uh, the idea of just exactly how much did he cover? Obviously, he covered himself to men as he walked around. Otherwise, everybody would bow at his feet and say, would declare him to be almighty God. But you could see that the demons immediately saw him, but he had to hush them many times because they would immediately belt out who he was. He had veiled himself to men, but yet he wasn't veiled to demons. They saw who he was. How that works, why that works, it's beyond me, unfortunately. I think, you know, I think you could achieve 10 doctorates and still not really fully comprehend exactly what that meant when he emptied himself. We do know that, you know, when he said, uh, Father, let this cup pass from me when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that that's Jesus the man crying out. But then Jesus in full and complete obedience in the same passage without even seemingly taking a breath says, nevertheless, let it be your will that's done, not my will, which is how you and I should respond in our moments of passion and difficulty and hardship. That's that's the model that um, Almighty God gave us in the person of his son in that moment with his, uh, with where Jesus in his state as a man was praying to God the Father. Uh, but so what that means is uh, how much how he masked himself is a whole different thing. But what we're talking about now is the glory that he had uh, before the foundation of the world. So he took on the form of a bondservant being made. He was being made in the likeness of men. So. Uh, and then, of course, in the in Paul's other letter to the Colossians in chapter one, verses 13 through 17, for he, which is going back to verse three, God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been have been created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together again this is saying that all things were created through him so here you see jesus in his pre-incarnate state as creator and this is something we covered a bit in part one but all things have been created through him and they're created for him he jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, who is before all things but Almighty God? That's what we see when we come to this place. In, in Colossians, we recognize that uh, John was declaring this. This is the Apostle Paul declaring this. And sometimes people say that there's a Pauline theology, or there's a Ioannine uh, theology, that John has his way of looking at things. And then none of that is true. Because the truth of it is, although there are 66 books written, there, there really is only one author who used about 40 plus men to write it. 
to write those 66 books, and all of which reads as one entire book. But here you have the Holy Spirit revealing through Paul and through the through the Apostle John. And then we went back and through the man Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, through the prophet Micah, that Jesus is God incarnate and Jesus is eternal. Well, this is key. What is what is the, why is all this important? This is why it's important. If you've embraced the wrong Jesus, you've embraced a Jesus that cannot save you. Michael the archangel is not a savior, and that's not who Jesus, the true Jesus uh, of the Bible is. Salvation is in no other but the Lord Jesus. And that by saying that, that is the one the true Lord Jesus found in the Bible. That's not the one found in uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants or or in the Watchtower and Bible Tract Society uh, publications, uh, but rather it's it's the Jesus found in the Bible. It's not even found it uh, in these bizarre new uh, revelations about who Jesus is uh, that come out of Bethel Church and Bill Johnson and some of the others that are out there. And in you know the Lord Jesus is not like a Tony Robbins in the way that Joel Osteen and uh, and a few others tend to preach him. He's not a self-help guru. Uh, but if you put your faith in those Jesuses that I have named, then you put your, your faith in the wrong one. But the one to put your faith in is the one that was testified upon by the apostles, by the apostles John and Peter, Matthew, Mark, and Paul, as we've mentioned here. So uh, moving on down now, Hebrews is another one of our great Christological passages. There are arguments for who wrote the book of Hebrews because there isn't an author to it necessarily. Uh, many people believe it was the Apostle Paul. Here we see in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, you see an equality to the Father. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Again, we see the same thing as what we saw in Colossians and even in Philippians that we see that the world was made through him. He wasn't a product of the world, but he, the world was made through him. He wasn't a product of the angels or made alongside the angels, but that uh, all of those things, all things seen and unseen were created, were made through him by a word of his mouth. So in this passage, verses one through three, we see the writer of Hebrews uh, inject uh, a quote from the book of Psalms, chapter 45, verses 6 and 7, which reads, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. In verse 7, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your, compa your companions. Now, here's something that I'd, I'd really like you to pay attention to before we go into the rest of verse 3. This is the psalmist saying to the, to the subject, your throne, O God, is forever. But then you look down and he says in verse 7, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So he calls him God, the psalmist calls him God, and then refers to God, his God, uh, who has anointed him with the oil of gladness more than his companions. So there you have a declaration of deity. Well now, so we've, we've looked at the pre-existent and eternal Christ, the deity of Christ, the eternality of Christ, the pre-incarnate glory of Christ. 
Now let's take a closer look at a few of those passages where where he is uh, where he is referred to as the Creator. Uh, John chapter one verse three we we read all things came into being through him Jesus that is the Word, uh, which is spoken of in verses one and two. And apart from him the Word the living Word, nothing came into being that has come into being, which further reinforces the understanding of Jesus, not only with a pre-incarnate glory, but as creator himself. Well, the thing I like, framer of the ages, that's something else. That's another attribute of the Lord Jesus. In, in Hebrews eleven three, we read that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Literally, the ages were framed or fitted together by the utterance of God. So we see Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory, Jesus as creator, Jesus as the eternal one, Jesus as God incarnate. But now let's look at what took place in the point of the, of the incarnation. Incarnation is a word from the Latin. It means literally enfleshment. In other words, the assumption of humanity. Now, you can't assume humanity. You can't say that of any other person. None of us assumed humanity because we just became humanity from the moment that we were conceived. Uh, but this uh, incarnation says that this there was a pre-incarnate being who took on or had an assumption of humanity that took place. Well, let's look at this. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 8, verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We'll see that when he says in the likeness of sinful flesh, it means that he did not have a sin nature, but he came in the very form that, uh, that Adam came in, which was Adam pre-fall, which is without a sin nature. Adam did not have a sin nature before the fall uh, because he hadn't died yet. He hadn't fallen yet. But when he did, from that moment on, he died and everybody else that came from him, from his genes and from his procreative seed, all of us were born with a sin nature. And this, the nature is what we desire. I've heard it described as putting a, a plate of, of uh, raw hamburger and a plate of broccoli in front of a dog. And you don't have to coax the dog over to eat the, the hamburger. He naturally is inclined to eat the hamburger because that's his nature. It's a question of his nature. It's quite simple. You make a movie that is built on scripture and make one that's built on total godlessness and see which theater fills up overnight. It's the godless movie that will pack in people, but the movie built on scripture will be utterly and completely rejected. It's a matter of our nature. We have a sin nature that craves sin. Well, Jesus didn't have that. And that's what it's talking about there in Romans uh, chapter 8. But let's also look at Hebrews. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2. I want to look for a minute at uh, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also, meaning Jesus, also partook of the same, that through death he, Jesus, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In verse 14, in Hebrews, it says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He partook of flesh and blood. And there you have uh, the refutation of the idea that Jesus did not come in the flesh. 
but that he was just a spirit or sort of phantasm, if you will. But let's look now, as I said, let's look a bit more at the virgin birth and uh, of a sinful mother versus a virgin birth uh, of a sinless virgin born mother. This is important. And the reason why I say that is the virgin birth comes through a sinful mother because all of mankind, male and female, has uh, the this sin nature within us. But it's passed down through the man. And so therefore... Mary, being sinful, did not pass this down. But now here's the problem you have, because the Roman Catholics had an issue with that. And so in order to right the issue, they started to declare that Mary was sinless herself. And so, of course, she's been elevated to deity status, to where she's pretty much the one deity that all Catholics pray to. And rarely ever do you hear them speak about Jesus or pray to Jesus or speak about the Father or pray to the Father. You hear them welcoming Mary into their service, welcoming the presence of the saints and that, and that sort of thing. And they're in the intercession of the saints and that sort of thing in violation of First Timothy, which says that there is only one intercessor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But you have them trying to get around this incarnation problem. For them, it's a problem uh, because Mary can't be sinful because then Jesus was born of a sinful mother. Therefore, Jesus has, you know, would, could possibly have sin, which he doesn't have sin from her. Uh, he was born of the Holy Spirit, of the Virgin Mary and of the Holy Spirit, and therefore does not have the sin nature and isn't necessary. Now, the problem, of course, with Mary being sinless, does that mean that her parents had to be sinless? Because otherwise, she would be born of sinful parents, which means that she would have Sin. So they have this thing called the Immaculate Conception. Now, a lot of people think the Immaculate Conception is referring to Jesus' conception, but it's not. It's referring to Mary's conception. She was conceived sinless and uh, was raised and was born, raised and lived sinless. Uh, all of that is a lie. All of that is false. It's not in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture. That's just sort of the dogma of the popes, if you will, over the uh, over, and the the errors of uh, the Roman Catholic faith over the years. I mean, but you think that her parents were sinful, they would have had to be conceived out of sin, I mean, out, out, sinless, and then the, her parents, I mean, there would have to be the sinless line, and it would have to go back, or otherwise it all breaks down at some point. Moving right along, let's look at uh, what Isaiah had to say. Remember, Isaiah wrote in the year uh, that uh, King Uzziah died, so he wrote toward the very end of the history, if you will, of Israel. And shortly um, before the end of uh, Judea, that is, before the Assyrians took Israel away, northern Israel away captive, and before Babylon came in and took uh, Judea away, basically wiping out the whole nation of Israel. He wrote uh, just uh, probably right in the thick of things there. Uh, and in chapter 7, verse 14, this is um, six, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Here's what Isaiah has to say about what's going to happen. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. An interesting story about this particular passage, the Masoretic text, for years, people questioned uh, the Masoretes because a lot of times with a lot of passages that really were clear cut declarations of who the Messiah was and who the Messiah is, uh, that there were changes introduced to the Masoretic text, which is where we get our, the basis for, for our Old Testament. 
And so you have this idea. What, what happens in the Masoretic text is you have this young girl. So that's not virgin in the Masoretic text. It's the young girl. But we have all of these uh, old uh, historic um, and extra Torah declarations that that indeed did say virgin. And these are not declarations from Christians. These are declarations from Jewish people, Jewish writers and, and rabbis uh, going back. So the argument existed that that was changed at some point. They, and it was sworn up and down. No, it's always been young girl. It's it's never been virgin. That's always been a misquote. So that is the, that was the prevailing sort of position for years and years until the discovery of the same passage, uh, which would have been in the Dead Sea Scrolls, among the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Septuagint. That verse, when they discovered that in, in the mid-20th centuries, they go to that verse in 714. And what do you think it, they find in that verse going back before Christ? Going back to uh, that the first century or a uh, uh, century or two before Christ, you'll see that it says a virgin shall conceive, and so that position of that of that verse saying virgin and not young girl that was vindicated by the Septuagint which predates the Masoretic text. Masoretic text, of course, dates to about the 10th, I think it's the 10th century, roughly. And you look in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the Gospel of Luke. He says, The angel answered and said to her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And then Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we see uh, Matthew's declaration of this process, that is the incarnation process, the virgin birth. Matthew states in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to Force her quietly, verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew, or Joshua as we would Anglicanize it. But it means salvation is of the Lord, because he will save his people of their sin. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. Verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. What Matthew has done in verse 23 has quoted Isaiah 714 there. And what does uh, what does Matthew quote it as? The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Now, the great thing about Matthew is he puts in, in parentheses, which means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So what we have are multiple testimonies of how this all took place. All of this could have been verified. All of this uh, could have been refuted. It wouldn't have taken much. Luke got his gospel from going back to all of the sources. In fact, many people believe, and I think it's a traditional thing, that they, the belief is that Luke went back to Mary because it was only Mary that could have given him those incidents that took place in his gospel. But also Matthew spent all of that time 
with him as one of his 12 disciples. And Mary was with them the majority of the time as well. But the point is, uh, the uh, these were all declarations made. This was predicted long before it happened that Jesus would be born. And there's a reason why he needed to be born sinless, because the, the lamb must be an unspotted lamb, must be an untainted lamb. The, the sacrifice must be perfect in order for him to cover our sins. It was necessary that he be born without sin and live without sin and die without sin in order to be sin for us, you and me, and which is what the scriptures all declare of him. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about his work and ministry uh, in part three of this. So let's quickly run through the final point that I'd like to make about him, which is what I'm talking about now, the sinless Jesus, the sinless man. So We've talked about his pre-existent glory. We've talked about his deity. We've talked about uh, his eternality. We've talked about him as the creator. We've talked about his incarnation, his virgin birth. But now let's talk about Jesus specifically as the sinless man. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, Isaiah goes on to talk about the Messiah. He says that his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit, or I think the King James Version has that as guile, in his mouth. His grave was assigned with wicked men. He was put to death among two thieves. One scorned and mocked him. The other said, have you no fear of God? And rebuked the other one on the other side of him. And looked to Jesus and said, we deserve our punishment, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he looks to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise, which incidentally, I pointed out to my son that because my son said that the, he'd heard that some people believe that Jesus descended to hell and was in hell for three days. Now, I know I'd heard that from a few places, and I know that I sadly wandered with charismatic camps for a couple of years, and they like to talk about it that way. They like to say that Jesus went to hell and all this kind of thing. Uh, but the truth is he didn't, didn't go to hell. And there's a whole theological position. He didn't need to go to hell. There was no reason for him to go to hell. He didn't, uh, he didn't sin himself and it wasn't necessary that he go to hell. But he said, uh, the only thing he said that was even remotely close to that is that a wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign, but no sign shall be given except that of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, so the son of man will spend three days in the belly of the earth. That's all that he said. He didn't say that it was hell. It's, it was a, it, this damnation or, or ter, eternal suffering. But here we see on the cross, he says, today you will be with me where? Not in hell, but in paradise. Why? Because when he cried out, it is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. When he said that, it meant it's done. He didn't have to go and pay an additional purgatory type thing or any other bizarre thing. Now, there are some very well-respected teachers that I love and, and adore that believe that Jesus uh, died spiritually on the cross. And I don't even think that's, well, I know it's not biblical because there's nothing that says that. Uh, he does say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that basically he shouted that out saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And so people around him say, hey, he's calling for Elijah. 
But in reality, he was saying those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Really, that's the opening line for Psalm 22, which would have to any Jewish man or woman, they would have had that memorized and they would have memorized it as at, from that first line on. You'd say the first line and the whole rest of the psalm would have come into their mind. And they would have seen that strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. They would have seen that they have pierced my hands and my feet. They would have seen all of the things that they were seeing on the cross at that moment when he said that word. They would, have, they would have flooded into their memory and they would have seen that this is the fulfillment of a prophecy of the Psalm 22. So moving on from this. So because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. How about John eight twenty nine, And he, Jesus is speaking, he, meaning his father who sent me, Jesus, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And that's what the father prophesied about his son. That's what the father prophesied about this servant when he comes, that he will speak only those things that he has given him to speak. He would be perfect. But John also goes on to say in chapter 19, he records that Pilate came out and said to them, Behold, I am bringing, you, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So there you have the testimony now of a Gentile leader saying he hasn't done anything. And yet, of course, everybody called all the more, all the Pharisees, all the scribes, uh, and the populace of Jerusalem at the time, who only a week before were praising him and saying, Hosanna, uh, ble- you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, Hosanna in the highest, that sort of thing. They were all cheering him a week before. And now they're all calling for him to be crucified. All of them, though this man found no guilt in him, insisted that he be crucified. Moving on to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21 regarding the sinless man of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here it is in verse 21. This is the point I want you to uh, to get. He made him, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this is the thing that's a, a moment for all Christians to gather here about themselves. If they have put their faith in the forgiveness of their sins in the Lord Jesus, it means that the righteousness of Christ rests and abides on you and abides on me. That means in the eyes of God, we are positionally perfected as if uh, we are positionally in a matter of justification. We are positionally with the same righteousness of Jesus Christ because his righteousness became our righteousness. It was nothing we did of ourselves, this justification in this position, this uh, righteous position, but rather it was a gift of God. Uh, It was the gift of God, as it says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. So this righteousness that we have, then we yet we still find that we sin, which is what that's Romans chapter seven. It's the idea that we find this law at work in our members where whereby we sin, even though the righteousness of Christ is upon us, we're still acting like uh, the old man. And so it's this battle, this ongoing battle that didn't exist before we were saved. It didn't exist before, before we put our faith in Jesus. We just went with all the wickedness and evil. You remember, we were just the dog that went after the ground hamburger and not the broccoli. That was just us. But now we recognize that there is life in the broccoli and there's death in the hamburger. And so 
we now seem to have this war in our members whereby we know we are to live according to to the dictates of Christ as given to us in Scripture, but that uh, uh, we this becomes a war for us day in, day out. But thank God that we have his righteousness uh, as our own. But he it, it was him, as it says in Second Corinthians, it was him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Uh, he was made that way that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So how about the writer of Hebrews in chapters 4, 14 through 16? So I, I'm, I'm reading a bit before and a bit after. It's very difficult because we, we, we jump around on all these scriptures and I don't really spend time to set up each and every scripture. And that's really not good exegesis. But uh, I want to give you some scriptures so that perhaps you can jot them down, go back, check out the context, make sure that I've got it right. Because if I don't, please, by all means, you you can visit truthforsaints.com, go to the contact page and send me a quick note. And I'll be happy to come on and publish a, a correction if I've got something wrong. I certainly am not beyond uh, making a mistake in some of these areas for sure. But I want to give you some passages, some scriptures so that you know that this position we have regarding the sinless person of Jesus Christ is a, is founded in scripture. It's not something we've made up. It's not uh, the clever crafting of a bunch of ecclesiastic hierarchy uh, dictating what they think Jesus was and that sort of thing. This is all founded in scripture, the sinless man. There's never been a person before Jesus nor after Jesus that's been sinless. Of course, Adam was sinless to the point that he finally fell. Uh, and from that point on, he's sinful Adam. So he, he, he blew it. He didn't, he didn't live his life sinless. Uh, but he certainly started sinless. He was created that way in perfection, but, but, uh, but turned his back on the Lord in in sin. So, the chapter chapter four of Hebrews, verses fourteen through sixteen, it says, there, "Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one. This is the part I want to, want you to pay attention to. Uh, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are." yet without sin. Verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. That's the key thing that we see that the writer of Hebrews also recognized that the Lord Jesus was without sin and declares that the Lord Jesus was without sin. But he also, the writer of Hebrews also in chapter 9, a little further down, verses 14 through 15, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal of the eternal inheritance. So how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He was without blemish. He was without sin. First John chapter three, verse five. 
you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. That's John's testimony, First Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And Peter also goes on to say a little further down in this letter, in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So Peter is declaring there he is without sin. But all of these passages you'll find, all of these passages, when you go back and check out the context of these passages for yourself, which I really do hope you do, uh, you'll find that there are always an encouragement for you and I to recognize he was sinless and was therefore a full and complete and total fulfillment or um, atonement for you and for me. He was a perfect and pure atonement for you and for me. That means that your sins and my sins are covered by Almighty God because he himself came down. Nobody else would be more worthy and could cover the sins of all mankind, those who put their faith in him, but the Lord Jesus. He's the only one that was perfect and that was pure. He's the, he was the creator. He was the eternal one that came to earth in the form of man, in the flesh, and remained sinless. He was born sinless, was raised sinless, and died and rose again sinless, which we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. The thing I'm going to end on here is Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. He's not changing. He didn't change into Michael, the archangel, then change into Jesus. He didn't change from Jesus, one of millions of gods, and then become a man, then a baby, then grew into a God again. He he didn't change his nature over and over and over again like that. He is the eternal one. He does not change. And that means if he had a call for all of us to come to believe in him, in his shed blood on the cross, in his full and complete and perfect sinless atonement for you and for me, then for us, it still exists today that if we find ourselves in sin, remember that he's the one that died for us. We put our faith in him for the forgiveness of sin. And by so and in so doing, we will find reconciliation if our faith is put in him. It's a genuine penitent faith. That is a repentant faith, a turning from the old ways and wanting to embrace um, the God of glory and and cry out to him for mercy. You'll, You'll find that he has not changed. He is still saving people today as he saved people uh, 2,000 years ago, nearly 2,000 years ago. Well, with that verse, we will need to close this particular episode as we've run out of time. In fact, we've gone over a little bit. This is going to be one of the longer podcasts. But my hope and prayer is that you'll hear these words and recognize the true God of the universe has come to earth and revealed himself to men through his son, the Lord Jesus, and that if you put your faith in him, Jesus of the Bible, the right Jesus, the the one identified in Scripture for the forgiveness of your sins, that is calling out on the name of the Lord to have mercy on you and to forgive and wash your sins away way, that you would come to embrace the God of the Bible in truth so that you can lay hold and lay claim to an eternity with him and either sonship or daughterhood to him now today and have that righteousness we talked about earlier. 
Now, if you're already a believer, my hope is that with this series on the person of Jesus, that you've received a deeper understanding and grounding in God's word as to what the scriptures have to say regarding the Savior and whom you've come to believe. It's important that when you're talking about him, that you know your faith is founded on a solid foundation. It's founded on the rock. Next time we'll come back and we'll, in part three, we'll cover the life, ministry, work, and uh, glorification of the Lord Jesus after his ascension. Come back, join us again next time for part three. Please feel free to stop by truthforsaints.com where I've put together some great charts on all of the various uh, denominations, where they came from, church history, and basically all of the worldviews that exist out there, the origins of world religions. Where did they come from and which religion came from which other religion? Do let me know if you have any thoughts or any questions. Just go to the contact page and it automatically hits my, my email and uh, I try to answer each and every one of those personally that, that I get. Thank you for joining me on this week's edition of the Truth for Saints podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast provided by truthforsaints.com.